And so what are we to do? What are we to do in this day? How are we to perceive the days in which we live and how are we to act? Well, we're to keep on keeping on. We're to live righteously. We're to study the word of God. We're to love our neighbor. We're to hate evil. We're to expose falsehood. And we are, as the title of this morning's sermon indicates, we are to share what we believe. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy over the past couple of years. And today, Dr. Brogy will provide us with some insight on how we are to perceive the day in which we live and how we are to act as believers by living righteously, standing firm, and being faithful. Today's sermon is entitled, Share What You Believe. Please join us in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 1, as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Acts of the Apostles, the 28th chapter. If you are here for the first time or live streaming, we have finished the book of Revelation. And since that time, I've done a number of series on Elijah the prophet, on spiritual gifts, and then some assorted topics. And as I promised you, late in the fall, we would begin a brand new book of the Bible. So God willing, the first week in December, we'll begin a brand new book and go through it verse by verse. But with that said, we are living in challenging days, but God has not forsaken us, just as he promised. It's the promise of the new covenant. He sent the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our helper, our guide. These past few weeks, I've gotten several emails and letters over my comments about the recent presidential election. I made some people obviously very mad. I made other people glad. But that does not surprise me because whenever you preach the truth, you'll make some mad or glad. And my goal is not to make you mad or glad. My goal is to please the Lord and to say what he says. And if you're here, then what I encourage you to do as a believer was to examine each presidential platform to see which one best was in sync with the Holy Scriptures and then to vote accordingly. And by the way, if... The election does not go in the direction in which you had hoped. I understand that maybe for some it would be easy to lose hope, but our hope is not in this government. Our hope is in the Lord. And as God's people, we are commanded to honor the king, to pray for our leaders. But our hope is in the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly what God is up to. I do know that he is sovereign and on his throne that no one in heaven is sweating. There's no panic there. I do know that men can do some very evil things. And indeed, if there is fraud in this election, I pray, as I hope you are, that it will be uncovered and people will be held accountable because our republic cannot stand when there's that kind of cheating. I don't know. But I do know that contrary to popular belief, the media does not certify elections. The Congress of the United States does, and they will make that calculation on the 6th of January. And come Inauguration Day on the 20th of January, whoever is the President of the United States, we will respect the office and we will pray for that individual. But just know as your pastor 
that I will always support policies that are consistent with Scripture, and I will always oppose policies that go against Scripture. My duty as a called man of God is to preach the truth and not to compromise it. And so what are we to do? What are we to do in this day? How are we to perceive the days in which we live, and how are we to act? Where we're to keep on keeping on, we're to live righteously, we're to study the Word of God, we're to love our neighbor, we're to hate evil, we're to expose falsehood, and we are, as the title of this morning's sermon indicates, we are to share what we believe. Listen, just because a church has a cross on the top of it does not mean that it is a sanctioned church by God. And just because a man calls himself a pastor does not mean that he is a God-ordained, God-called pastor. And we're living in days where there's a great shakedown that is happening. This is a day that tries the souls of men. And each and every believer needs to stand firm and be faithful We have a mandate from our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus, that we are to go into all the world and we are to make disciples, make converts, and that has not changed in 2,000 years. And it doesn't matter how difficult the circumstances may get, we will stick to the script and we will do what God has called us to do. And listen, one of the reasons our nation is so sick and in so much trouble is because the church is lukewarm. Many of God's people are distracted, they are disobedient, they are cold-hearted, and they have stopped doing what God has called them to do, and that is to go make converts of all nations. And so I've selected this passage in Acts this morning because it gives us some very, very practical advice on how to do that. One dying believer, who had been a Christian two weeks, said this to his pastor, I quote, I'm not afraid to die for Jesus has saved me. But I have led no one to him. Must I go empty-handed? When a Baptist pastor by the name of Charles Luther heard that testimony, he wrote a hymn. And these are the words that he penned in 1877. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? So, not one soul with which to greet him, must I empty-handed go? When I was a brand-new Christian in 1974, we sang that hymn in the church that I was a part of. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with him with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Ask yourself this morning, when was the last time you had a part in any way, shape, or form in bringing someone into the kingdom? When was the last time you even tried When was the last time maybe you extended an invitation for someone to come to church? When was the last time you prayed for someone that you knew was lost and in need of a Savior? What we need in the American church today is for God's people to reach the lost and help to grow the saved. God calls us, in essence, spiritual obstetricians. He doesn't write the gospel on the clouds. He doesn't shout it from the rocks, though he could. He uses individuals like you and I to be able to share the good news with those who are lost, but he's also called us to be spiritual pediatricians, that once they come into the kingdom, we are to encourage them to grow with them to the fullness that belongs to Christ. Now, if you know the book of Acts, it's really a blueprint. It's God's design on how the church should function. 
And if you sit down and you read the book of Acts, one of the things that you discover on virtually every page is that it is a very evangelistic church. And in many ways, the style and commitment that they had to evangelism is so contrary to the modern church. And yet this small group of people, really a despised people, with no seminaries, no Bible colleges, no radio, no printing presses, no internet, no television, none of those things. A small group of people who went out against the might of imperial Rome, who had to deal with the philosophical sophistication of the Greek culture, who thought that what they preached was foolishness. They went out and they told people about an executed Jew who died on a cross, who was raised from the dead, and by the grace of God, as one of their critics said, they turned the world upside down. They did so much with so little. And yet we live in a day where we have so much and we do so little. So I think this passage this morning is very, very helpful to us because it will give us some ways in which we can share the gospel. And if you haven't led anyone to Christ in some way where God used you in the last few years, I really want you to listen and pay close attention. Now, this is one of five historical books in the New Testament, the historical books we usually call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and then the book of Acts. The emphasis in the Gospels is on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but in the Acts, it's what Christ does through his church by the Holy Spirit as he promised. And what you find in Acts is not some hodgepodge collection of notes. It's a very well-ordered, well-structured book so that we can become what God wants us to become. And in many ways, it's like the book of Genesis. Barashit is the Jewish name for Genesis, Genosios in Greek, in the Septuagint. It means beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings. So is the book of Acts. It's a book of beginnings. We find the very first local church. We find the first deacons and elders. We find the first outreaches, the first church plants, the first missions movement, the first Jewish-Gentile fellowships, and the first persecutions. And our passage is helpful because it's not describing Paul doing mass evangelism like he did up on Mars Hill. It's not Paul speaking in some large synagogue. It's not Paul speaking like he did in Athens, in Ephesus, to a large, huge theater. No, it's Paul just dealing with people in the everyday events of life, where you and I live. Now, let me see if we can set the context here for the book. I have a chart here for you that will help you to visualize the book. There's really two ways that people typically try to think through Acts, and it's helpful to know the big picture of a book so that you can find your way around it and it becomes a tool, not just for your own life, but in the discipleship of others. You can certainly uh, outline the book biographically because there are two key people. There's the Apostle Peter, my clicker doesn't work, so follow my finger. There's the Apostle Peter, and he is focused in chapters 1 through 12. And then there's the Apostle Paul, who's focused in the second half, verses uh, chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book, 28. So those are the two principal characters. They're both found in both halves, but the first half deals primarily with Peter, the second half with Paul, and the bridge between the two, of course, is Stephen. 
another way in which you can outline the book, and I think it's a better way, it's based on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Because this is one of the few books in the New Testament that God put within the book a divinely inspired outline. You probably know Acts 1.8. Jesus said before his ascension, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And what he states there by word of prophecy in Acts 1.8 is what unfolds in the next 30 years. And so beyond the biography of Peter and Paul, um, you have in Acts 1 through 7, the church started, which is a picture of local missions there in Jerusalem. Uh, an event happens, if you remember Stephen, that preaching deacon, gives an incredible sermon. It's recorded in Acts chapter 7. And these Jewish people to whom he's preaching, and by the way, as I said in the first service, if you're trying to put together the Old Testament, study the sermon of the apostle, not the apostle, but of the deacon Stephen. And I have a whole message on it. Study Stephen's sermon because he really capsulizes the entire Old Testament. And you'll be able to really work your way around it if you'll study his sermon. And so he gets up, he preaches this sermon in Jerusalem, he makes people so angry, they rock him to death, and they do so under the leadership of the Apostle Paul. So a hinge verse in the book of Acts is Acts 8 and verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death, and on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, that's Acts 1.8 except the apostles whom God called to stay in Jerusalem to protect the church. So in Acts 8 through 12, you have the church scattered. It's a picture of what we might call home missions. Uh, then when you come to chapter 13, we are told in Acts 13 and verse 1, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, and then they're named. And while they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Now God had called these men to be missionaries. I think both were apostles, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. But these men were called of God. But what this church recognized was that they, as a church, needed to personally support them. And so missions begins with the local churches, churches that come alongside and help missionaries. And so when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, and they sent them away. And so Acts 13 begins the third section of the book, what we call the church spread. And it's a picture, really, of what we might refer to as foreign missions. They go to the remotest part of the earth. Uh, there it is. All right. So you find the very first foreign missionary. So that's the book of Acts. The church started one through seven. And Luke is a premier historian. And he drops all these little chronological clues in there. So we know it covers two years. Acts 8 through 12, just as Jesus prophesied in Acts 1-8, they are scattered into Judea and Samaria. That covers a period of 13 years. And then beginning in Acts 13 through 28, even to the remotest part of the earth, it covers another 15 years. And so it's a picture of the first 30 years of church history. Now, the book begins and ends in the same way. It's about a saved people preaching to condemn people, how they can be forgiven. And that doesn't surprise us because the Spirit of Christ is living in them. And for the Son of Man, Jesus said, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
And that's what he's commissioned every true born-again Christian to do on his behalf. Now, chapter 28 is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read our text in its entirety, but I would like to begin by reading the last eight verses here of Acts 28. Follow along. When they had set a day, verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul... They came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed having a great dispute among themselves and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Now, with that background, let's dig into the finer points of the passage. If you know this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, for many years, had had a dream to go to the city of Rome. Years before, as recorded in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in the city of Ephesus, God the Holy Spirit had put that earnest desire in his heart to go to Rome. Listen to Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The Lord Jesus also put it in his heart. Not only did God the Spirit say in his spirit, I want you to go to Rome, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in Acts 23 and 11, and Jesus said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. In addition, God the Father said to the Apostle Paul that he was going to Rome, and he did it through the means of an angel. And the angel promised Paul that when on that ship, though it would go under, that he would be preserved and he would go to Rome. Listen to what the angel said in verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. Acts 27, 24, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and before God, and behold, God has granted you all, you all those who are sailing with you. So, Paul, you're going to Rome. You're going to be a witness for Christ. No wonder Paul could say with such conviction in Romans 1:15, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. God the Spirit said, you're going to Rome. God the Son said, you're going to Rome. God's angel on behalf of the Father said, you're going to Rome and you're going to testify before Caesar. And so, this apostle, when he comes to the end of the book of Romans... With full confidence, he said, listen, after I've finished my ministry in Jerusalem, he's writing Romans from the city of Corinth. After I've finished my ministry in Jerusalem, 
That's Acts 21 through 23. I will go to you by way of you, and after that I'll go to Spain. Now, I realize that maybe you will never be called to go to Rome, but you are called of God to go out and make a difference in people's lives with the good news that we share. Jesus called every born-again Christian to share the good news. Listen to what he said in John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Every believer has been chosen and ordained of God to go and bear fruit. Now understand, fruit is used, that term, in three ways in the New Testament. There's a character of Christ, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. There's the fruit of the Spirit. There is, as in the book of Colossians in the first chapter, fruit is described as good deeds done on behalf of Christ. But also, like here in John chapter 15, there's the fruit of winning someone to Christ, a a convert. Now, God wants to use you in bringing someone to Christ, and we can play different roles in in that endeavor. Already in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, when he addressed the disciples concerning the Samaritans, he reminded them, look, we're reaping today for something we didn't sow. There were some people who went before us who sowed the seed, and now we're reaping the harvest. And so some of us will sow seed. We are the first person to, to speak to someone about the claims of Christ. And, and other people are farther along where they are immediately ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be involved in sowing and reaping and really in both. And so God doesn't say, hey, you lost people, come on into the church and get saved. No, he tells us to go into the highways and the byways and the lanes and to bring them in, to compel them in. And so fruit has within itself seed for more fruit. And the biblical principle is that healthy sheep will indeed reproduce. And so Jesus promises us fruit and not transient fruit, not the kind of fruit that is man-made that eventually just disappears Though there will be some people that you will share the gospel with based on the parable of the sower who will go south. They won't stick with it. Three of the four soils go south. They don't stick with it. But there will be some fruit, as Jesus said, that will remain. They will be eternal fruit. And so Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30 reminds us the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he was wise when souls... Look, if you want to be wise, among other things, you do not want to go to heaven empty-handed. He wants to use you personally to go. He's talking about the Great Commission again. As you go, to go and to bear fruit, the fruit of conversion. So again, if you've not led anyone to Christ in the last few years, listen carefully because what you find here in Acts 28, which is why I've selected this passage, are three qualities, three abilities that if you cooperate with God, the Holy Spirit, he will use you in this process. The first ability, I suppose, is the best ability and the most important ability, and it is availability. So Roman numeral one there in your outline, the Apostle Paul was available in showing Christ. He's available in showing Christ. Now, if you've read the previous chapter, then you know that as Paul journeyed from Caesarea to Rome on a boat with 275 other people, a typhoon came along and ended up shipwrecking them. 
turn back a page or so to, uh, to um, Acts chapter 27 and look, if you will, at verse 14 for a moment. There we're told, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euryquilo. The word for violent is the Greek word tuphonikos. You can hear our English word, typhoon. On one side of the equator, they call hurricanes a typhoon. And so it was a howling wind. It was a hurricane. Some of your translations render it Euryclidon. It's a Greek word that means literally a northeaster. And the people in those early centuries feared those storms. They had no technology that could tell them they were coming. Many a boat went down to the bottom of the Mediterranean because of these nor'easters. On this occasion, the ship is approaching the coast of Malta, and the waves and the surf break it to pieces. Look at chapter 27 in verse 41. We're told, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, who becomes a leading actor in this pericope of Scripture, the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that all were brought safely to land, just as God had prophesied. None perished. And so chapter 28 opens with that. Look at 28 in verse 1. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Here's a slide that might help you. Uh, you can see the uh, boot of Italy. And down here on the right hand, left-hand corner is Sicily. And right below Sicily is this little island called Malta. I was on a ship one time when we went by Malta. And it's not a huge island. It's rather small, so to speak. And they didn't know that it was Malta. It's 17 miles long. It is nine miles wild. It happened during the night. And so when they get there, they discover where they are. We're told in verse 2, the natives, literally the Barbaroi, some of your translations say the barbarians, as in the margin of the New American Standard out there in the notes. The natives, or the local inhabitants, the Net, Net Bible puts it, showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. Now, when Luke calls them barbarians, that's not a put-down. And that's why many newer translations, because of the nuance of the word barbarian in our day, render it a little differently like the natives or the inhabitants of the land. But understand, in the Greek's mind, if you didn't speak Greek, it didn't matter how well-educated you were, you are considered a barbarian. To listen again to today's message, Share What You Believe, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. 
and requesting program, Share What You Believe, 020. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.